and hello and welcome to the last podcast you'd want steve here and what was that was that a new addition to the show was that my new official entrance music yes it was it's called too cute for words and it was written and made for the show by former guest brian swartz you can check out all that he has to offer on his links in the bio to this episode as well as every episode as that is the new entrance song to the last podcast you'd want and ladies and gentlemen has it been a fun fun time i've been watching some fun movies Got the wife to sit down and watch Knives Out the other night. She very much enjoyed that. For those of you that follow me on Instagram, I just bought The Last of Us 2. I'm having a lot of fun with that. I'm also getting a lot of work done at my actual job. But that's not the point. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome to the show today, Mr. Lance Bangs. He has some great stories for you today, folks. You're going to know him definitely from Jackass, which he's got some great stories. But you're also going to know that, did he work on Where the Wild Things Are? He did. And he's got some great stories. Is he in one of my favorite movies of all time, Dave Chappelle's Block Party? He was a cameraman in that. And he's got some fun stuff. Oh my gosh, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be such a great episode. But please, please, before we get into it, let Mr. Swartz, let Mr. Brian Swartz know what you think of Too Cute for Words. I love it. I love it. I hope you did too. Because it's so cute. It's too cute for words. Guys, I'm so excited for the episode today. You don't know how happy this this entrance music makes me. Like, it's a progression to the show. Like, it's an addition. It's more. Like, I love it. Next, dude, I'm telling you. Next, new photo new new logo new logo is coming promise you that new logo is coming ladies and gentlemen we're gonna get into the episode thank you so much for coming on this journey with me on a weekly basis i i can't tell if you i'm just so ecstatic i listened to the theme like right before i played i mean you heard it but i played it myself because i've been playing it all week i've been having it i've been having it ready i've been excited for it uh guys i'm gonna get into the episode Mr. Lance Bangs, I hope you enjoy it. Reach out. All of his uh all of his links are on the socials. Other than that, watch watch Knives Out. It's on Amazon Prime. If you got Amazon Prime, Knives Out is for free skis. You could watch it. Uh, not to mention there's lots of good stuff, but you know, hit me up on Twitter, hit me up on Instagram. Let me know what you're watching, let me know what you're doing, let me know what's going on, let me know what you think of the new entrance music for the show. Kids, we're gonna get into it. I love you all for coming on this weekly journey with me, and until next week, tip the veal, try the staff, enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to another episode of The Last Podcast You'd Want. Steve here, and today I bring a guest. He's a man, you could say a jack of all trades. He's a director, a producer, a cinematographer, just to name a few. Today we bring Mr. Lance Bangs. Lance, how are we doing? I'm doing all right. I'm trying to cheat death and survive this pandemic. As as we all are, the, to the best of our abilities, are you staying safe and sane during these crazy quarantine times? I am, yeah. I uh, 
was in Southern California working on a film when everything started to get weird and jumped on a plane to get back home to Portland, Oregon and take over uh, bunkering down here. And it's good that, that you got there in time. Uh, I yeah. know some, yeah. I know some people uh, that live in LA uh, that are in, you know, another state right now with, uh, with family because they're just not able to get back home. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. yeah. But with, uh, with that, uh, we will just get right into the show with a question I always love to ask. Have you ever walked out of a movie in the movie theater? All the time. I had a policy where any time that I went to go see a movie and realized that Andy McDowell was in the movie, I would get up and walk out. And it happened a lot in the mid-1990s. Uh, I've worked in the past as like a projectionist and at movie theaters, and so could generally just go see like everything that was running or screening. And found her to be insufferable, just sort of like a right-wing Republican model who ended up like being cast in a couple films and sort of like, <laughs> like talking her way like that through movie. And when she would pop up on screen, I'd realize like, oh no, I can't stand this person in their performances. I didn't know they were going to be in this movie. And then I would get up and walk out. That was the most common batch of films. There's probably like five or six of them where that happened. Okay. That's, that's a, a really interesting uh, only because uh, two two movies come right to my head right away: Hudson Hawk, yep, and, and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yeah, there was a period of time, like those are both movies that are, you know, worth trying to watch generally. But after uh, Sex Lies and Videotape, the Soderbergh film that she was in in '89, there just was like a string of like independent or you know, medium budget films that had large casts where I would, you know, it wouldn't be billed as like an Annie McDowell movie and you would go see it and all of a sudden she would pop up on screen among like the 15 cast members and you'd be like, ah, why did the movie just fall apart? Absolutely. That's so funny. Well, then I will tell you now, uh, I want to say it's called Hide and Seek. It just recently came out. Okay. Tell me Stay about that movie. What's that, what's that one like? Andy McDowell's in it. Um, okay. <laughs> it's, so what it is, is uh, a woman... Uh, gets engaged to a, a, a gentleman who's part of a board game family. Okay. And, and on the night of the wedding, a game, they have to play a game. Yeah. And so what it is, is the, not to give too much away, but the other, the other uh, in-laws are like, oh, it's real easy. I had to play Parcheesi. I had to play Scrabble. Right. She, she pulls hide and seek. Okay. To where, to where she has to go hide and they hunt her. And if she lives till the morning, she wins the game. I see. Okay. It's it's a super fun, entertaining film. Uh, uh, Andy McDowell's in it for probably 15, 20 minutes, maybe a little okay. longer than that. Yeah. Uh, she plays uh, the mother-in-law of the woman. She plays the mother of the, the husband of the man getting married. Right on. There but are some great films that she was in. Like, uh, she was probably in shortcuts a little bit okay. uh, Altman film with again like you know dozens of characters um, Groundhog Day is a great movie which she's in uh, I can make it through that one there you go that, is, that, like, is, um, that is a good fun one yeah for sure it's just ones where you don't expect her to be like a leading character yeah and you know there's other movies I've walked out of I um, the world that's in my head or my own imagination sitting in a, in a theater watching a projected film like I can kind of just go into my own head and enjoy things for different reasons or not need to stay with the narrative of the film so if I hit a certain point where it takes a turn or there's other certain things that happen in movies that I 
that's the cue for me to get up and walk out and just go watch something else for a while or go write in a notebook or be in my own inner world. So it's definitely, uh, the stakes are not that high for me to walk out of a movie. Sure. Sure. Um, and that's, that's always, that's always good. I have a lot of, uh, a lot of guests that are, are very appreciative and they're like, no, I've, I've never walked out of a movie. Yeah. I definitely don't have that, uh, approach in life. Life is too short. If a movie is not at that moment, continuing to have you enthralled, like it's time to break the spell and get up and walk out. Absolutely. That's great. Um, with that comes uh, the kind of the opposite spectrum, uh, a movie that you could watch every day. Uh, essentially, uh, if, you're, if you're flipping the proverbial channel and it's halfway through a film or if you need to clean the house and put something on for background noise, just a movie you could watch every day. There's a lot of those. I, uh, I also enjoy and get things out of subsequent watching of movies. So I've never been like, oh, I, I wouldn't watch this again for most things. Um, the movie Vern in Florida is one that is easy to kind of put on and just get lost in the language and the way that people are speaking and the, the kind of quiet gaze of the camera in that one. It's a documentary by Earl Morris. Um, I made an audio cassette of just the, it's not really a film that has like a soundtrack or score, but just the actual audio from the film. And would play that audio cassette before other screenings of other movies as sort of uh, intro music when I was working at different theaters in the past. There's just a, a great amount of um, regional dialects of a strange area of Florida that Carol Morris recorded for that film, and it's great to kind of get lost in there. That's awesome. And what, and what was that one called again? That one is called Vernon, Florida, V-E-R-N-O-N, comma, Florida. It's an oh. early documentary by Earl Morris that you should definitely watch if you can. Okay. Um, and that's uh, it, not not to put you on the spot. Do you happen to know if that is readily available on any streaming service? I believe it is. I know that Criterion put out a version of it, so I imagine that if you have the Criterion uh, channel app, you can probably watch it that way. There's a great streaming site uh, called Canopy that hooks up with library systems. So if you have a library card in almost any jurisdiction in the United States, you can generally use that to log into this streaming site called Canopy that has a great collection of documentaries and criterion titles and would probably have Vernon, in Florida. Excellent. And uh, the amazing wonders of the internet. Uh, it looks like it is available on Amazon prime for five ninety nine. Okay. I bet you could probably find a rip of that on YouTube as well, to be honest. You, you probably uh, could. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say uh, one of the films that, that you recommended for me to watch uh, was, I believe, available on YouTube, but also available on Amazon Prime. Okay, great. And with that, we actually do come to uh, the film you recommended uh, for me to watch, uh, which I, I I will say is on Amazon Prime for free. Uh, it's a very interesting watch. It's a French film. Uh, the translation for American is Zero for Conduct. Zero for Conduct. And I do not speak French, but if you were trying to track down the original, it looks kind of like zero de conduit, um, you know, like a grade of zero or F for failing, basically, for conduct or behavior. And uh, the, the film takes place uh, in France. Uh, it, it revolves around a, a boys' school with uh, three main characters causing general uh, disruption. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I would love to talk about the movie. For anyone that hasn't seen it, there was this French filmmaker named Jean Vigo. His father, again, I'm not a film historian, and I am also not an expert at pronunciation of European and Russian uh, language, but the Catalan region of Spain, which is its own sort of distinct area that his 
considered breaking off from the rest of Spain at different points in history. A man from there, uh, with the last name Vigo, was in France at the turn of the century and gave birth to this boy, Jean Vigo. The father, the guy from Catalan, he was like a radical anti-military socialist anarchist character. Um, he had a really wild life and started like socialist newspapers and did radical actions and was very clearly objectively like persecuted by the French government uh, during that time period. And would get arrested on sometimes real charges, sometimes trumped up charges. So in this kid, John Vigo's life growing up as a kid, there's just all this turmoil and mayhem and we're going to flee this apartment and go hide and live somewhere else and hope that the police don't catch me there. And I'm going to keep putting out these socialist newspapers and speaking out against the military. And so when John Vigo is 12, his father gets convicted. And during his previous trials, he had done crazy stuff like, you know, a previous judge for some charge that had been ruled against him. The father was like claiming like, I'm going to bomb the courtroom. <laughs> like he was a very wild character. So John Vigo's 12, his, son, his father goes away to prison and almost immediately gets murdered in prison. And very much so looks like the state just had him killed in prison, essentially. Uh, you know, if you think of times in Western culture where there's been dissidents or radicals that have gone into prison to be suppressed, like that's essentially what happened to him. So he gets killed. So Jean Vigo's 12, his dad, who's had this, you know, very dramatic, wild upbringing, gets killed in prison. And he'd been using a fake name. So the father, instead of using the last name Vigo, had taken like a Spanish anagram, uh, you know, called himself Miguel Almeriada, Almerida, which is an anagram for life is shit, like Mary, <laughs> essentially. So sure. under this like radical fake name uh, is doing all this work and then gets killed in prison. So Jean Vigo, uh, the people looking after him feel like he's in danger and that you don't want like your dad to have been, you know, this legendary persecuted political figure. You want to like try and get through the rest of your childhood without having the cops breathing down your neck. So they change his name and put him in a boarding school. So he spends like maybe nine years in these like oppressive, brutal uh, to him, you know, like overly authoritarian boarding schools and mostly in the Paris area. So when he gets out of that, he's like, you know what? I'm proud of who my dad was. I'm going to take his name again, Vigo. And I loved watching movies. Like it was sort of like it's a dawn of cinema in the 1920s. Mm -hmm where he's in Paris, where there are theaters and it's possible to go see projected images. Um, it was kind of like some of what he was seeing was before there was Think Sound. So things didn't have uh, audio that was recorded at the same time on some of the things he was seeing as a kid. And sure. then during his lifetime, they invent Think Sound where you can have an actor say a line in the same moment. It's, you know, tied up to the, uh, the image that you're seeing rather than recorded separately later. So he's seeing all that, but he's mostly drawn to things that are more documentary based that are uh, short films like newsreels. And there's a bunch that are coming out of uh, Soviet Union, post-revolution, Russia, um, by a company called Kino. And there are three guys that were like pioneers of, you know, that era of filmmaking. It's a guy named Zigo uh, Vertov who made the film Man with a Movie Camera. Vertov had two younger brothers, both of whom fled, uh, rise of fascism in Eastern Europe. They were Jewish by background. Two of the brothers go to Paris 
and meet up with Jean Vigo. And they're all like, man, we love watching movies. We're, you know, they're seeing things at the same screening theaters in Paris. We all think that the government's fucked. We all think that the stuff that's uh, more experimental and based on what you can do with a movie camera is more interesting than just someone pointing a camera at a theatrical play and having like a pretentious actor come step out and do like, oh, I am speaking like this. Like none of that really appeals to them. So they're like, what can we do with cameras to kind of make something more interesting or more poetic or more tied into the realism of what people are feeling and seeing in these like borderline revolutionary times? So in this backdrop of 1920s Paris, before the rise of fascism in neighboring Germany, kind of between the two world wars, they start trying to like dream up, like how would we get access to cameras and start making stuff and, and make these like films that were sort of like looking at the world and showing how things really are, but in a slightly poetic or elevated uh, representation. So they team up and they make a short film uh, called Apropos Denis. And again, I don't speak French and that may not be the right pronunciation, but basically it's like about Nice or Nice. It's that kind of French resort luxury town that wealthy people would go and sort of have a vacation at. It's like a nine minute film, I think, that maybe this one's a little bit longer, maybe it's closer to 20. All black and white footage of, you know, wealthy people stunning themselves in resort luxury accommodations intercut with like the struggles of people that actually live in that town, like the workers and people are just trying to get by in a marginal existence. But it's all very poetically filmed and they innovate a couple things while making that. They get a camera and are just like out in the real streets filming conditions of how things are. They shoot some of it hidden camera. So it's one of the first movies where they try and figure out a way to get the camera operating to be within something that they can kind of cloak or cover up with other objects so that people don't notice that there's a movie camera there. Um, so they're able to gather some footage that just is like, here's what life is like when people are not aware of a camera and not like smiling or posing or conscious that they're being filmed. And then it also has things that are like dramatic recreations or heightened poetic visuals of uh, details of things like close-ups or slow motion or film run backwards through the camera again, um, double exposures, things that weren't super common in, in film prior to them messing around with it at, at that time period. They make that, uh, it gets terrible reviews. People are outraged. People who see it are like, why, you know, why are you mocking the wealthy, nice people? Why are you showing people suffering? Like, that's not what we came to see at the theater. We dressed up for this. So they really don't get hired to make more things. They're both struggling and trying to figure out, like, what are we going to do next? Uh, they make a short film where they figure out how to get a camera underwater uh, about a sort of a Olympic athlete swimmer. And that one's kind of, again, like weird backwards moments where they take the footage of someone diving into the water and run it backwards. So it looks like they emerge from the water and land perfectly posed on a diving board. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing to see footage underwater. Like they figured out a way to safely do that with a camera. So people seeing it are like, this is insane. Like, you know, we haven't really seen footage from like underwater of people swimming in this like guy's Olympic body. Like, you know, again, it's a non-narrative, not theatrical based, not here's the story, then here's the conflict and then here's the resolution. It's more of like a visual um, feast, but it's a mix of reality verite footage, but also heightened more, you know, they're paying attention to lighting and making it look beautiful in some moments to accentuate feelings. So he gets tuberculosis. So Jean Vigo is like poor, struggling. His dad got killed in prison. 
He's trying to make these like innovative experimental films. He's met this guy, Boris Kaufman, that's a genius at, at photographing them. And they just can't quite get a, a foothold to like, you know, get all the funding they need to like make the things that they want to make. But he also is attacking the idea of other movies. He thinks that movies that are not based in reality or not documentary are all phony and that they're a waste of time and that like <laughs> pointing a camera at a stage play is like a dead format. Like that's, you know, leave the theater behind. We're inventing something new with movie cameras now. Um, so they make this movie that we're talking about now called Zero for Conduct. And it's probably around like 40, 44 minutes long. It's not like a typical 90 minute Western feature film length. And he doesn't use like established actors. It's one of the first movies that ever is about rebellious teenager, young adolescent, pre like, you know, 12 year old, 11 year old kind of kids. It's set based on the boarding schools that he had spent nine years in, which he resented and felt were oppressive and stymied him. And he's very mocking and withering about the people in charge and is sort of basing some of their behavior, not only on like what he went through, but like the stories he had heard about the guards at the prisons where his father had been incarcerated for his murder. So he's working through all those emotions and feelings. So it's one of the first movies I'm aware of that has that kind of like loaded personal history going into every frame and intention of like what the filmmaker is trying to put across. It's not someone that comes out of a background of flattering actors and actresses and coming from theater and, and thinking that like a three act structure and Greek format drama is like the most important thing for him, like the verisimilitude, the feeling, the look of it, and like the emotions being expressed and showing this version of reality, but in a heightened poetic way is really the most important thing of what he's trying to put across. So the film is black and white. These kids who are not really trained actors, they're just like people that he found that he's like, hey, you wanna be in a movie. Um, they're riding on a train. They do little magic tricks to amuse each other. They end up at this boarding school. The people in charge are like kind of played as imbeciles and there's like weird surreal visualizations of how they get portrayed and put apart, uh, put across. The kids all revolt. The phrase that his father had made his like pseudonym name out of about like life is shit. Like one of the kids just kind of directly yells that is, uh, a line of dialogue. It's not a super dialogue heavy film. It's, they, they had trouble technically with like doing sync sound super clearly. So what they tended to do was instead of like, I say this and then you say this and then you say this and then I say this, it tends to be like glances and looks and then very clear lines that are said in a way that's like almost intended to be recorded. Like this is shit. It's just like an expression that'll come out very clearly alone without like three minutes of dialogue on either side of it. So he's definitely working through all these intense issues from his own childhood. And at this time, we're like, you know, we're in late 1920s, maybe 1930. There isn't, like the idea of teenagers hasn't really <laughs> become a thing in, in sociology yet. Like we're, we're 25 years before Rebel Without a Cause or, you know, any of that sort of like American notion of like teenagers post-World War II. Sure. So he's really onto something about like that era of like frustration and rebellion of people that don't normally get to express that like there isn't much culture that's expressing like frustrated teenage hostility and let's blow this up and fuck school kind of energy back at, at the time that he's making this film so it ends with this really lovely sequence where there's just kind of like the the way that film score at the time is is very dated and like dah, 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 kind of you know <laughs> basic music that just stops and it shifts into this like quiet, spooky soundscape design. The footage goes slow motion. 
kids start like destroying, but like visually lovely way, all the pillows and down feather filled uh, bedding in their bunks. They start like doing backflips in slow motion and jumping from one thing to another. And they start a procession, almost like a Eastern religious parade where they're like marching. They like tie up one of the headmasters to a bed and leave him on a roof. Um, all of a sudden, like the actor is playing, the headmasters are suddenly played by like little people <laughs> and uh, with like weird outfits and costumes. And the kids like go up on the roof and start throwing shingles down at all of the um, authority figures. And it just sort of ends in this anarchistic triumph. And then like, that's the end of the movie. So when they had the film ready to come out uh, in the early thirties, the government shut it down. They like censored the film, said you could not screen this movie. This is gonna cause all the youth to revolt. This is gonna disrupt society. This is gonna lead to like anarchy and rebellion and mayhem. So the film just gets kind of squashed. So it's this lost work uh, where nobody can see it. So at that time, everything falls apart. Uh, the political and invasion of the German forces coming in to take over France in the 1930s. Boris Kaufman is a Jewish man who had fled persecution in Poland, what we now call Poland, but had been like part of the Russian Empire at that time, I believe. Um, he enlists in the war for France, despite not having nationally grown up in France, to fight against the Nazis. France, the rest of France eventually surrenders or, you know, I'm not uh, nuanced enough about politics to say whether you'd say that they were defeated or if they surrendered, but he goes from fighting on behalf of this country of France to France kind of gives in. So he's like, I'm out of here. I can't support that. I'm not a Nazi. I'm not supporting surrender to the Nazis. So he flees to Canada and then ends up in Hollywood, which we'll go into once we're done talking about Zero for Conduct. Boris Kaufman is still, sorry, uh, Jean Vigo is still suffering of tuberculosis, which he caught. And he's in a sanitarium trying to get treatment. He finds a woman he meets there who falls in love with him. She has like a wealthy father who then helps him to make his only like true feature length film, which is Lata Lant, L apostrophe A-T-A-L-A-N-T-E. Again, I'm not positive about pronunciation. These are just things I've rejected and seen the name of it, haven't heard out loud. That's considered by some people like one of the greatest films ever made. It's this like beautiful, lovely black and white film about a couple that are on a barge going down the river in France. And it's sort of like a Tom Waits character floating around with them who works on the boat. And it's got more underwater sequences and beautiful moments and visuals and romance. And are we doomed as a couple or are we gonna be okay as a couple sort of imagery. Uh, and then he dies. So he's trying to get that film out. He had a hard time making it. He's like on the deathbed with tuberculosis while trying to make these films. And that one also gets like taken out of his control. They chop out 10 minutes of it. They put dumb pop songs from the time onto the soundtrack. They change the title. It's not the film he was trying to make. And that gets put out. So he dies. So everything's suppressed. World War II happens. After World War II, the Nazis are defeated. They're out of France. France starts to look back at like all the things that had gone wrong, you know, at the beginning of that. And they realize like, oh man, this like filmmaker kid that died, but when he was 29 years old, he made these like several great films that are actually pretty amazing. And we squashed them and didn't let anyone see them because we were worried about like how revolutionary they were. So they start getting projected in 1945 and other French filmmakers who were young at the time, like uh, uh, Francois Truffaut, 
they see those and they're like, whoa, this stuff is amazing. We're going to like take the idea of youthful rebellion and make the French new wave and sort of lift a lot of imagery from him for that. Uh, if you'll give me a minute to talk about Boris Kaufman, the rest of his life is insane. So he was sure. the, guy that, the younger brother of Vertov at the you know, formation of Soviet cinema. He flees uh, persecution with you know, three brothers, essentially Jewish, living in the land that's now currently Poland. They flee there. Vertov makes films in Russia, Soviet Union, depending on the year that you're calling it. Boris Kaufman and his middle brother go to Paris. They meet up with Jean Bigot to make those films. He joins and fights against the Nazis and then flees uh, when France surrenders the Nazis to Canada. Canadian film board are like, you're an amazing filmmaker, cinematographer. We got to get you to Hollywood so you can go work there. They help him get from Canada to Hollywood, where the first feature film he shoots is on the waterfront. Whimsy gets nominated for an Whimsy Academy Award for his first like Hollywood feature film on the waterfront. Marlon Brando, uh, you know, Ilya Kazan, sure, amazing feature film. From there, he goes on to DP, uh, be the director of photography for a string of like Academy Award winning films and, and nominated films. He does Baby Doll, he does 12 Angry Men, uh, the first feature film, Sidney Lumet. Um, goes on to do Splendor in the Grass, Long Day's Journey into Night, World of Henry Orient, The Pawnbroker. All these amazing films throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, after World War II, and wins an Academy Award and lives to a healthy age and then, you know, dies in 1980 in, in New York City. So it's wild that these kids that were doing all this, like, radical innovation of what cameras could do and, and how to make things that weren't based on literature or theater as a format but to invent, like, a new way of making cinema, had all these insane things that they were making back at that time and, and innovate all these like personal, emotional, poetic ways of making films, but also doing it based on the reality of like conditions in the world and looking at what is actually happening on a social level. And then survive all the traumas of the rise of fascism in, in Europe in the 1930s and 40s. Um, yeah. So yeah, Zero for Conduct, I definitely recommend it. It's not terribly long. Um, again, it's probably like 40 to 44 minutes and photographed by Boris Kaufman, directed by Jean Vigo and, uh, two amazing people to look at the rest of the work of and, and think of. And certainly if you like any of the imagery in this, I would recommend the rest of Boris Kaufman's Hollywood feature films. Like I think anybody could watch on the waterfront and it's not that challenging of a, you know, it's like an entertaining Marlon Brando film about dock workers. Uh, you know, so if this original thing sounds too academic or pretentious, uh, maybe you would enjoy some of the work that they did in like, 12 Angry Men and on the waterfront in the um, 50s and 60s in Hollywood. Sure. Uh, but I have to say zero for conduct. Uh, it was a fun watch. It was a, it was an interesting film. Uh, and, and it definitely has some strong imagery that goes with it. Uh, I love, uh, the, as you mentioned, the beginning of the, the, the movie uh, when they're on the train and it's just two boys entertaining each themselves and any, any man is going to watch it and just, relate just relate to it and i was laughing and chuckling because they were just doing stupid shit that i would have done to, to make my friend laugh yeah exactly they're sort of you know doing little like making your finger disappear or uh, little magic trick kind of tricks entertaining each other while passing time on a train yeah you know at that era like it was like how they would know to kind of emphasize the inner world of childhood or the way that two friends entertain each other hang out that's all kind of precursor to things i shot later in life that that brought that feeling or spirit or 
focused on that again rather than uh being overly tied to the the tropes of theater or literature sure uh and, and with that i ask uh the, these films that you love so much were they the inspiration for you to get in the fields that you are now involved with with films semi like i think i responded to them or connected with them or identified with them but like i I didn't really personally set out deliberately to get into filmmaking. Like I never went to film school or things like that. I essentially like left home and as a teenager, uh, maybe a similar rebellious um, feeling or, or approach is what Jean Vigo might have had, not to overstate it, but, um, and would take a camera with me just more as a way of documenting what I was seeing and what I was experiencing but without the idea of like, oh, I'm going to make movies in Hollywood. Like that wasn't the uh, deliberate sure. plan. Sure. Uh, and, and with that, you, you do have an extensive um, uh, just just filming. Uh, one of the first credits you have, uh, Fatboy Slim's video for Praise You. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, again, like not that it was this um, deliberate, but things that I responded to in the approach of Boris Kaufman and Jean Vigo are there in the way that Spike Jones directed the video for Praise You, which was shot with hidden cameras uh, in a public space using like real people, real conditions, and then adding one surreal or, you know, heightened element to it of Spike doing that dance that he had come up with and choreographed. Um, so being someone that had kind of like traveled and tried to hide in spots and not be noticed and have a small camera and discreetly film things, that background is part of what worked in that video and how it was shot. Sure. Again, like that was directed by Spike. It was all his idea. That's his creative work. And I was just the person uh, shooting it. But it certainly drew upon a similar approach to um, what Boris Kaufman and, and Jean Vigo had been up to in the 1920s. Absolutely. Uh, and, and we can look at the extent of work that you've done. Uh, and you've been with Spike uh, involved in a lot of things. One of the uh, questions I did want to ask you you are the behind-the-scenes documentarian for Being John Malkovich, Be Kind Rewind, Where the Wild Things Are, just to name a few. What, what does that entail? What, what does that mean, being the behind-the-scenes documentarian? Honestly, I, you know, I don't want to mischaracterize anything. On a lot of those things and a lot of other parts of, of that time period of my life, I was just sort of like traveling the world, going to things that I thought was interesting, uh, shooting footage and, and documenting things or making little poetic visuals of things that they're going on. Oftentimes people who were in charge of those things responded to my work or things I was making or short personal films that they'd seen that I generated and would ask me to kind of be around or be part of the team or be on the production. And then at the end of that, when you're trying to figure out like how you credit that or what you call that, um, the the term that people use that made sense for the credits was behind the scenes documentarian and that that was uh you know just someone that had been around archiving things shooting footage pitching in ideas having conversations telling them about like oh you should check out this or have you heard this song or what you know what about this idea okay um, just sort of being in the mix or along for the ride maybe absolutely uh, and but uh, if you folks haven't had the chance to see everything uh, that Lance has worked on. Go, go look at his work. It's, it's amazing. Uh, one film I do want to ask, because you were there, uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. Any, do you have any fun stories or memories from, from that set? Because I know that's a film that Spike 
worked long and hard to make, right? Yeah, absolutely. He had been uh, talking to Maurice Sendak, the author and illustrator of the original book, for years. Uh, There's a point that Maurice Sendak owned the rights to a book that he did not write or illustrate, but that he just sort of uh, had the rights to of Harold and the Purple Crayon. And while Spike and I were making music videos uh, through a production company called Satellite Films in the 1990s, during the era of like alternative uh, music videos running on MTV and other outlets, he had been looking at that as possibly his first feature film and sort of developed a bunch of ideas and got partway into the you know development of a, a film version of that that would have combined live action with like innovative ways of doing illustration and graphics that Spike was like imagining and creatively coming up with that like hopefully someone could have made real. Um, but things that were like, like his brain worked, like very genius and inventive and not exactly how things had previously been done by uh, people that might've done things by rote. So that was a tricky development for him and Maurice Sendak like saw within Spike like a lot of great qualities of like this person's really a distinct artist who's on his own wavelength and makes things happen. This kid's great. I wish we were getting this film going. So people have been trying to get Maurice to make a film version of Where the Wild Things Are uh, for years. And when those kind of stalled out at different points, he was like, what about that Spike Jones guy? Like that's the only real like younger active filmmaker that I really think is like super genius and interesting and gets it and has a sensitivity and understands my brain. Let's try and see if he'll consider it. So they started up again with uh, Spike going to spend time with Maurice in Connecticut where he's living. And I started going along for some of that to shoot footage of their conversations. And just Maurice was such a fascinating person and his take on the world and things he'd lived through was so rich and deep and had so many layers to it. But Spike and I started shooting footage with Maurice and made a film that, uh, it's called Tell Them Anything You Want that came out through uh, Adam Yaka, the Beastie Boys production company, Oscilloscope Films. So that's a film that we co-directed that is available also uh, online and through Hulu and probably through your library system on the DVDs that Oscilloscope made. Sure. So I think you can get it through Amazon and I think it's free on Hulu and things like that. Again, that one is called Tell Them Anything You Want. Sure. And really, um, really, really fast, really fast. Yeah. Because you just, you just glanced over that so quick. Are yeah. you saying that ad rock of the Beastie Boys? I'm sorry, I misspoke. Uh, MCA. Uh, it, okay, okay. Uh, yeah. But e- either way, one of the Beastie Boys is is the man behind Cinescope Films. Oscilloscope Films. Oscilloscope Films. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, e- uh, either way, please please continue. You you yeah. were making the documentary. So. Spike is uh, kind of going through the development of how he wants to make Where the Wild Things Are. And for him, the inner world of childhood is something that he is great at expressing and filming and the opening sequence of that film when uh, Max is sort of in a snow fort he's built and then like a bigger kid jumps on it and caves it in on him. That felt so genuine and so real to me, more so than any other film uh, about like what the quick turns of like having a great time as a kid and everything crashing in on you and feeling horrible and uh, uncertain and and like you need help um some of those things are amazing that spike pulled off in that film but like maybe the people at the studio are a little bit concerned or don't see what what do you mean you're trying to make like a live action film of this like what do you mean you're going to have like real giant characters and fur that are moving around like just animate those in a computer instead but spike wanting the real verisimilitude of like you know performers in there like real actors and performers who had nuance to them interacting with a real 
young person who could act and express all these like emotional storminess and uh, resonant sides of the internal world of a young person. He definitely like knew what he was trying to pull off and go for with that. And it was a, you know, somewhat long and tricky process to get that film made. So I continued to shoot footage um, when they need help casting. I think Spike had seen all the people that normally come through the channel through like great casting agents in LA and New York and other places, uh, but still hadn't quite found the exact combination of traits for a young person to play Max. They had me go start um, doing casting as well for that. And went through a bunch of interesting people that were young people from families that were from like a creative or artistic background, a lot of painters, writers, musicians, and then found uh, a young guy named Max Records in Portland, Oregon, whose father was a photographer, um, who was like the right age. His name was Max. He had like the inner emotional storminess and believability, but also like a conventionally, you know, photogenic young person that could possibly take this on and, and do the role. Uh, so I did, I found Max for the casting for that in shot tests. And then we kind of brought him down um, to work with Catherine Keener and see what happens if he like runs a scene. He wasn't someone that like was trying to be a professional actor. He didn't have like an actor background. He was just like an interesting young person. Sure. And then when we got into the stage of trying to film all of the, um, the actors that did the voice work for the film, Spike wanted them to actually act and be in a real physical space, all of them together acting out the performance. And that we would film that and then use that as the basis of the eye animation of the suit performers who would try and match the blocking and movement and pace and tempo of James Gandolfini and Michelle Williams um, and Catherine O'Hara in sure. their performances for what you see on the suits. Which again is not how voice work is normally done for, you know, uh, animated projects or CGI projects. You normally have like James Gandolfini alone isolated during a 40 minute session where he just says all the words in the script that are from his character. And that's the end of their work for Bugs Life 3 or whatever. You know what I mean? Sure. So Spike really wanted like, no, we're going to spend weeks all like doing this reveal, acting it out on a foam soundstage with microphone packs on headbands to get our audio and boom poles uh, that are trying to like catch us as we move around and we'll get all the real sound of everything. And you'll really be James Gandolfini like looking at and reacting to Michelle Williams and she'll be in real time reacting and looking at you and it'll be much more uh, emotionally rich and genuine than if you were just isolated talking into a computer in New York City without me there. Sure. So spent several weeks uh, filming as Spike directed them doing the entire scripted performance. So it truly is like James Gandolfini in his like just fascinating prime stomping around this foam soundstage and being this intimidating physical presence. Like his, he really did, when you filmed him, you got a sense of like, oh, this like eight foot, nine foot, 10 foot tall furry monster wild thing version of him makes a lot more sense with like a, a worked up slightly sweaty glowering James Gandolfini emotionally invested in it and like hacking out his frustrations and quick temper and and all the details that are in the script uh in real life rather than being like alone in a sound booth, sound booth somewhere without everyone all there with him so that was an amazing process and seeing all these different great actors you know Forrest Whitaker Chris Cooper also in the cast 
sure. um, who have different backgrounds and approaches. And when they do their own films, they aren't necessarily all around each other with the full cast. They might come in and do their scenes with the person that they're in a scene with, but they may not spend time with like every character that's in the movie. You know what I mean? They're all like on this physical film soundstage, like acting out the entire film, getting to know each other, um, having Spike make quick adjustments or rewrite things or look at a performance and give notes and kind of sculpt it to like what he has in, my, in his mind. Like that was an amazing process. And that then became the reference for the performers in Australia who wore the suits of those characters to sort of match the timing and delivery and gestures of you know, what Gandolfini really did when he stomped from this place to this place to be closer to this character. And then uh, took the visual footage that I'd shot of the faces and used that as a reference for the um, sort of like the eye and nostril flaring um, so the work of the physical monsters themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So again, like just being along for the ride and, and finding different ways to contribute or add to a project and then I think that I might have gotten credit as behind the scenes documentarian and visual effects, you know, because of the work shooting, what became the uh, reference for the um, faces and then cast, casting. Absolutely. So like a, a mix of different things. And, you know, during all that, I'm also conducting interviews that end up going on for archival projects that we hold on to and, you know, record Mark Ruffalo and his thoughts about what he's going through at that time of his life when he plays uh, the really Max's character, boyfriend character. Um, and then maintaining those friendships or continuing to work on different projects with those people in the subsequent years. Sure. So it's a, sort of a strange uh, batch of work. And then but, separate from that, direct other projects and produce other projects and shoot things you, for other people. Yeah, you've, you've directed uh, a handful of comedy specials. Uh, yeah. one, of the, one of the latest things you did, uh, you did uh, The New Negroes, I believe, for Comedy Central. Correct, yeah. That was a series uh, that I was an executive producer and the director of all the episodes for, uh, created by Baron Vaughn, a great performer, and Open Mike Eagle, a great musician and performer. I'm familiar with both of them, yes. Uh, yeah. And it was a great product, uh, great community, great comedians. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite comedians, David Borey, was on it. Oh, my God, yeah. He truly is my favorite working stand up that uh, if people would check him out, I'd be happy. With that being said, I did appreciate and uh, like your appearance on All Fantasy Everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great podcast that David is uh, part of, along with Ian Carmel and Sean Jordan. Sean Jordan, yes. Um, if you're looking up David Borey's work, uh, his last name is spelled G-B-O-R-I-E. In addition to his own comedy stand-up, he uh, has appeared in some short films. He's also the current voice announcer for all of Comedy Central's content, so if you turn on the channel... He's the voice you hear telling you like what's coming on at 8 p.m. I, I, I always laugh with that. <laughs> yeah, and he appears on a great uh, podcast called All Fantasy Everything that you just mentioned. Yes, uh, by the time this airs, we'll have already uh, featured our episode with co-host Sean Jordan. All right. So uh, I got one one of the three to go for, for that. Uh, not yeah. to mention, I, I've had a handful of guests uh, that they've had on All Fantasy Everything on the show. I'm a big fan of it. I promote it whenever I can on the podcast. So. Okay, great. Uh, but yeah, I was going to say, I always laugh. Uh, I, I don't have cable, but I have Pluto TV. Okay. And on, on Pluto TV, they will do commercials for Comedy Central. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll hear, coming this Wednesday. And I just laugh. I'm like, fucking David Borey. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Directive and executive produced a stand-up series that David Borey appears in uh, for Will Smith. 
that is called This Joka, and Joka is uh, J-O-K-A. Uh, we shot that in Las Vegas in November, and I believe that's going to come out through Quibi at some point in the future. Oh, excellent. Um, and David did a great performance in that one as well. Sure. Da I, everything that David does, I, I've caught David a lot at uh, Faded. I don't know if you've ever been to their show Faded. In yeah. Movie. Yeah. Yes, but uh, I, I love Faded. Uh, with that being said, uh, if you get the chance, folks, uh, Faded is currently on Twitch, uh, so you can check it out there. Hopefully by the time this airs, we'll be back to normal. But either way. Um, we'll we talk about some some films about children, about rebellion. What are some movies for you that take you back to a more youthful time to your childhood? There's a great film called Over the Edge. <laughs> it is uh, <laughs> uh, another like massive youth revolt film. And I'm gonna open the computer and just confirm so I'm not like misspeaking. I know that Tim Hunter was involved in that film, but I don't want to say he was the director if he was just the writer. Um, sure. So it's an early film that Matt Dillon appeared in, uh, directed by a guy named Jonathan Kaplan, released in May of 1979, but it got suppressed pretty quickly and kind of shut down. And then I think it was re-released maybe in 1982, um, but again, didn't become like a huge hit or super known. I think people were just like capitalizing on the rise of uh, Matt Dillon, who's it's his first movie that he's in. It's essentially like teenagers in a housing development that's getting made called New Granada, kind of like a planned community. And they revolt and lock all the adults up inside a high school, like cafetorium type of thing and start burning the town down and stealing pop cars and, uh, you know, exploding everything. Super rebellious. It's definitely a film that Kurt Cobain saw as a kid and was like, this is amazing. This is like, you know, imagery I'm gonna put into five songs. Um, it's a great kind of lost uh, teenage rebellion revolution film that you should try and track down. I don't know if it's available on any streaming forms. Well, maybe it was called it was called Over the Edge. Over the Edge, yeah. So originally 1979, but I think it really got squashed and might have come out in '82 after a couple of years of being suppressed. Sure. Let's see so that's here. a great uh, kind of youth film <laughs> that's worth checking out. Uh, I. I feel like it was written by Tim Hunter. I'm going to look it up and just make sure I'm not. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and so, a court. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so Tim Hunter, who wrote that one, um, ended up like doing uh, Twin Peaks, Mad Men. Uh, he did the film Tex, which Disney financed, which was like another sort of uh, Matt Dillon, S.E. Hinton youth adult novel. But it was like more of like a depressing, our parents are dead. Kind of film for Disney to put out in '82. It definitely sure. stood out as like Disney's most uh, grim or depressing, what real life is like kind of young adult film in, in that time period. Tim Hunter also did uh, *River's Edge*, which is another great youth bummer uh, kind of Hesher kids who one of them kills a girlfriend and disposes the body, based on a true story from 1981. Uh, they basically like these like metal burnout Hesher kids kind of leave this girl's body and go look at it and don't report it or do anything about it for a couple of days. Uh, great performances by Keanu Reeves in that movie, Ioni Sky, Dennis Hopper, sort of when he was just coming out of his drug era of the 80s and like had to get insurance to be in Blue Velvet and this film and did these like wild, uh, very striking, intense performances in both movies and showed people like what his missing charisma that had not been in films since maybe Over the Edge um, was like during that like kind of lost period from 80 to 86 when he was off going through uh, 
in hard drug times. Sure. So yeah, River's Edge, <laughs> that's another one. Uh, these are kind of, you know, bleak or disturbing films, but capture some of the, the feelings of uh, the anarchic side of, of teenage emotions. Absolutely. And uh, looking at it over the edge, uh, are all available for rent on YouTube, Vudu, Amazon Prime, iTunes. All right. So they're all available there. But those are two uh, good ones for a youthful film. Uh, when it comes to movies in general, do you happen to have a favorite director? Man, I uh, I guess I like making things more than watching things. So I don't – I feel like I don't have um, – there's a lot of people I like the work of, but I don't know if I have like a living favorite director. Okay. I mean, and it, I mean, in reality, it can be someone that has passed on just a, a collective work of someone you've always enjoyed. Okay. Give me like, give me a minute to come back to that one and we'll have you ask that question again. I'll try and have like a, a better answer. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I'll mention a movie uh, that I was going through the list of all the works you've done. On this, you are okay. listed as a camera operator and the director of a photography second unit, and that is Dave Chappelle's Block Party. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. Again, like another film that, I mean, one of the aspects of cinema that I love that maybe people don't think about or acknowledge is films that are just made creatively and poetically out of real life conditions where you're not filming actors, there's no scripts, there's no, like, I'm a self-involved 19-year-old who was always told I was pretty, and now I'm here to have attention paid to me. Like, avoiding all of those personas and just finding, like, interesting real people in the world, sometimes in their own home or their house, and filming them, but doing it in a poetic or heightened way that sort of shows, like, here's what reality is in, in Ohio with these people that live in this community, and then here's how, like, I can make it look more uh, elevated or or poetic as I film it. Um, that was an amazing project. So Michelle Gondry directed the larger film and was not available to go to Ohio where Dave Chappelle was living um, at the time. And he had sort of walked away from doing the Comedy Central series of the Chappelle show uh, that he and Neil Brennan had been making. And there was conflicting reports in the media about like why he had walked away or what do you mean he walked away? They just offered him all this money. How does someone walk away from tens of millions of dollars? Who does that? Why would someone do that? He had sort of uh, left all that and wasn't really answering that many questions and just sort of went back to this area of Ohio that he lived in and was sort of keeping to himself and had his family and was kind of like walking to uh, like a nearby, you wouldn't even call it a convenience store. It was more like a little market in a rural area, like a small farm building that sold cigarettes and candy bars and, you know, some basic supplies and magazines. And the woman working there, like, she didn't know who Dave Chappelle necessarily was, but, like, knew that he kind of stood out or didn't look like everyone else in their small Ohio farm community. And that he would come in every day and buy a pack of cigarettes and make small talk. Um, Dave wanted footage from that area and all the people of him going around and interacting and popping up and talking to people. So Michelle Gondry sent me to go uh, shoot all that footage and just basically, like, went alone with one camera assistant, uh, TG Firestone, and a, a line producer to kind of get release forms and hung out with Dave Chappelle while he was in this weird moment of his life of sort of like not being available to everyone else that had a million questions for him, but like willing to be on camera with me and uh, talk and, and go hang out with people in this part of Ohio. And then he started like asking, you know, like 
African-American marching bands, he would find like, hey, if we rented some buses, what if we bring you to go perform with Kanye West and Lauryn Hill and the Fugees and the Roots in, in New York City? And, you know, just kind of doing all the crazy logistics of like getting all these local people that we met in Ohio onto buses and traveling through this like freak rainstorm that hit and knocked out power, you know, going from Ohio to New York and then not being able to cross the bridge and eventually filming this performance in a, an area uh, in Brooklyn. And, you know, you're, you're taking these kids and they're meeting Dead Prez and Kanye West and The Roots and Lauren Hill and Fuji's and Jill Scott and having this amazing everyone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, that, that also ties into this uh, thing. And there were aspects of that where we would do like, we shot that on film on 16 millimeter film. So I've got like a shoulder mounted uh, airy camera and I'm trying to record audio at the same time and have this great young camera assistant that I brought from Portland who wasn't like a Hollywood pro, was just like a good guy that I knew. I never went to film school or, or worked on like, here's the steps you go through of working your way up set from being a first AC to a second AC to a loader to a, you know, like I never went through any of that training, but like I know how to make things and how to bring things and how to shoot them and taught myself how to thread the camera and could shoot 16 millimeter film from my shoulder, record sound and be discreet and make something that works as a movie but not need a whole giant production team around me. And then that's that's part of that film, uh, Dave Chappelle's Block Party, that Michelle Gondry directed. That's great. So so it, it was you and two other people. So you were the cameraman in the, in the city shots. Uh, I went with, I was all the stuff with Chappelle uh, in Ohio and all of him talking and sort of talking to camera and sure. all that. And then stayed with Chappelle and covered all of his, sort of scenes throughout the block party, which happens in Brooklyn with all the performers and Chappelle mm -hmm. going out on stage and hosting and emceeing and, you know, live sets from all these artists. And then uh, all the sort of like wrap up conversations with Chappelle. We also brought some of the women who ran that like little corner market yeah. from Ohio to watch the performance, like, you know, him sort of like human connection with her at the end of the film. Uh, shot all that stuff, essentially sticking close to Chappelle for the whole ride. I just I, I I ask because I worked at AMC uh, when that movie came out. Oh, I I saw it in the theater probably six or seven times. Wow, that's great. I, I, I own that movie on DVD. Yeah, uh, I I rented it so much from Blockbuster that my wife just that's why I own it on DVD yeah. now. I rented yeah. it so much she just bought it for me. Oh, um, I, I and I ask that just because it, it, I laugh because one of the fav one of the funny things for me is when Chappelle is walking through the city. And then he looks at the cameraman and goes, watch out for that pole. Steve. Oh, yeah, I that's me bumping into a pole. <laughs> do you wrong. I won't yep. do you wrong. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's um, uh, me and Chappelle. Yeah, that's, that, is, that is a movie. Uh, for me, a movie I could watch every day easily, Dave Chappelle's Block Party. Yeah. And I already knew so many of the artists that was there, uh, but that film definitely introduced me to Dead Prez. Yeah. Like, if I, if I hadn't seen that, I probably never would have known who Dead Prez is. Yeah. But that's that's an yes that's that's uh great and amazing um since we've talked about Chappelle's party and you've had a chance to kind of think about it uh, have you been able to think of a director that you kind of enjoy the collective works of yeah when you say collective works that's what kind of like pulled it together and, and helped me refine my brain into like what the real answer is which is David Lynch um because he's been so interesting in feature films he also makes books he puts out photography he does conceptual stage work, uh, he does meditation training for people. He puts on like live trans, trans Transcendental, transcendental meditation. Exactly, transcendental meditation. He can make commercials, 
He can make uh, little intro pieces for things. He's good at speaking to people, like when he did his sort of like, you know, master class things, like he's good in those formats. Um, he designs good posters for his work. Like he just across all these different formats, he's a true uh, creative presence that I have responded to or liked or gotten something out of almost all the things that he's made in different forms. His sense of music and what he's put together and manifested with Julie Cruz and those recordings was great. Um, he's able to do a multi-episode contemporary streaming series and make that full of some of the wildest and most innovative imagery in a long time, like that eighth episode of the Twin Peaks Showtime series a year or two ago, maybe two years ago, uh -huh. uh, is phenomenal. I don't know if you had time to see that. Um, there's one episode in particular that's just amazing. Sure. And and he got, he. I mean, you mentioned Twin Peaks. Uh, we, we've also mentioned, uh, not even thinking about it, you mentioned Hopper uh, and yeah. him, having, him having to get uh, insurance for Blue Velvet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which he's definitely like, you know, he's known what he wanted to make. He set a tone. People respected that. Like it clearly the actors are working within the world that he's sculpting and creating from early on. It doesn't feel like someone's just doing what they always try and do in a movie when they're working within David Lynch's uh, films. There's beautiful Super 8 verite onset footage from Blue Velvet. Like I like that he had the instinct to have someone that probably was similar to what I would have wanted to do on those films to like shoot things on film at the time. Like on the set of Blue Velvet, there's a great Super 8 documentary from maybe a French filmmaker that's uh, on the Criterion release of it. Um, I respect all those aspects of the ways that he's chosen to make things over the years. Of course. Uh, and one of the uh, – a great little story that I was told, uh, and and uh, it was from Robert Forrester, a former guest of the show. Uh, I asked him about Mulholland Drive. Yeah. And he, he told me this whole story about how David came out and basically just gave him like this – vivid description of what he wanted and didn't tell like Robert at all that like you're just a flashback you're not even wow. part of the actual film you're a flashback to, to other things yeah uh, so the man definitely has a great vision um, and he has a way of just putting on film what he wants uh, yeah it, it, much like uh, I always go to Tarantino Tarantino is a man that knows what he wants on camera and and he gets it regardless of he wants. Like David Lynch has has a probably a deeper contract in Tarantino of of final cut. <laughs> yeah, and with Lynch, like I feel like he has such strength with like his sound design and the way that he uses score and soundtrack songs in it. Like he just really creates a world and it's from a distinct perspective and yet all these people contribute and flesh out and give life to personas within that world in a way that's and really impressive for decades and in so many different formats. Absolutely. Um, and with that, I mean, this could possibly lead into, since he has such a unique style, do you have a favorite genre of film? I, I like sad, pretentious films mostly. I like things that are poetic or realistic or heightened. Uh, sure. I like to go get lost in an inner world in my own head when I'm watching a movie. It's almost like going into a darkened theater to watch something projected on a screen is a substitute for religious practice. Um, it feels like going to mass to go and sort of get lost in a, in a darkened theater. It's also fun to be in a large group of people at a theater. Like some of the best moments I've had have been at, you know, sort of mass market uh, horror films and comedy films when there's just a great 
audience erupting and, and flinching and reacting and shouting and laughing. Uh, and that sort of energy in the air taking over is, is one of the great experiences of life. And Absolutely. I hope that that's not done with now. Oh, I either either do I. I'm a big uh, I'm a big movie goer. Uh, I've always been a big movie goer. My parents were big on going to the theaters. Uh, when I was a kid, we'd go, you know, every week, if not every other. Yeah. So uh, I, I feel you on that. Uh, and and some of the best experience I've had in comedies, uh, especially because the 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 films I'm going to mention coming up, you've you've worked in, and I've never been to a single showing in a theater where it wasn't near max capacity. Yeah. And those those are of course the Jackass movies. Yeah, I'm very happy to have been involved. Uh, mm -hmm in the Jackass films and the TV show over the years. Uh, so a fun question that kind of leads into all of this. If you go on IMDb, and this is a question that I asked uh, former uh, guest Rick Kosick, so you'll be able to answer as well. IMDb lists Jackass as a documentary. That was my approach from the beginning, and it was probably considered pretentious or, uh, you know, too self-involved by other people making things who are more directly responsible for it than me. But um, that was how I felt about it at the time. This whole idea that we're talking about from Forrest Kaufman, John Vigo in the 1920s with what you can do with a camera and fuck literature, fuck the pretension and, and world of actors and actresses and like drama department and theater, we can make something that shows camaraderie and the heightened things that happen when people start making each other laugh and sharing an experience and like daring each other to do something and not wanting to let their buddies down like filming that and shooting it in an interesting heightened way and taking what you can do with hiding a camera and getting reactions from the real world, um, taking what you can do with a camera that shoots in slow motion to get more detailed things that I can't normally see, of like what happens when you stretch a body part out in slow motion, um, running footage uh, in interesting ways and combining it with music in a way that heightens it or adds to it. That was all stuff that was like very compelling to me and part of what I tried to focus on or bring to the way that I shoot everything, including the stuff I was shooting for the Jackass guys. So when it was time to kind of like get the film out there in the world, I was like, we should try and get this nominated as best documentary, like for the award consideration. And, uh, and other people were like, no, fuck that. Like why no half-stepping? Let's go for best movie overall. Like don't just consider us a documentary in that category. But I think that like, as far as a listing on IMDb, I can accept that it's a documentary. Certainly people could also call it a comedy and that would make more sense to some viewers maybe, but like this is stuff that was real, that we really made happen. Knoxville always had a very strong ethic about not faking anything, not cheating anything, not like making it look like someone did something that they didn't really do. Like there's a, there's a sort of a core ethical background that comes from skate photography and skate magazines of like, we print no bails. Like if someone doesn't really land the thing, you don't cut it in a way that implies that they pulled it off. You don't show photographs of someone jumping down a 20 foot set of stairs if they didn't successfully land on the skateboard and roll out of it. If they just crashed on the ground, you don't run that photograph of them like in the middle of the air on the way down and act like they pulled it off. Like if you see an image, it's supposed to be something that like genuinely happened and wasn't faked. And he just had a really strong ethical thing about that. I did as well, Spike did as well, to not fake things or cheat things or you know make them up as we went. Sure. Um, with that, I can say uh, of, of all of the films, I've sat through all of them. Uh, there is only one clip that I cannot watch, and it is from the first movie. Okay. Paper Cuts. Yeah, that one is, that was so wild and brutal to actually experience in film. I, 
I don't even know if everything comes across clearly to the viewer, but um, that was a strong idea. The concept was, you know, paper cuts, everyone can flinch when they imagine remembering times that they've had them or experienced them and your body kind of cringes and tightens up and your spine gets a chill across it from even the word of the phrase or seeing it happen or like, you know, just bringing thinking on about it. And, yeah. Thinking about it. So it was a strong idea that Steve-O had about getting deliberate finger cuts, paper cuts in the webbing between his fingers. So not, mm. just, like, not just on the fingertip, but like in that very sensitive area that every time you move your hand or grip something, it's going to re-agitate or open that wound and it's tricky to heal that quickly mm -hmm. and it's going to, you know, stick with you for a couple of days. And what do you do to kind of heighten that? Because we're making a movie. This isn't just for the TV series. This is a major motion picture coming out through Paramount. Okay, you're going to dunk your paper cut riddled hands into a giant vat of rubbing alcohol. And that's going to make it sting and, and much worse. And then when you realize when you get like a bucket or a cooler, that doesn't really read as much visually. But if we got like a clear thing to hold all the rubbing alcohol, that would look better and we could film it better and see whatever happens to the hand in there. So let's go to get some like fish tanks and put those in the motel room in Florida that we're going to film this at and try and get it. So we shot that multiple times in multiple ways. We tried it oh. out in the parking lot and it was too humid and muggy outdoors in Florida uh, to make the paper cuts work. Like essentially the paper would get slightly softened or dampened just from being out in the muggy Florida um, spring or summer air. So, you know, trying and trying and trying, and I think maybe Ryan Dunn was trying to get some going as well. And neither one of them really successfully got anything that visual or that intense to happen with the envelopes and the paper that we tried outdoors uh, because of the mugginess in Florida. So then we tried in an interior motel room. And we were not staying at nice motels during those shoots. We were in these, like, I don't want to denigrate it because I love it. We go back to the same place every time we can. But, like, there's a particular motel, you know, chain in Florida, uh, in this kind of area that's near swamps and Tim Payne's campground that we can go build things to jump off of. Um, and it's, you know, it's a fairly beat up, you know, hotel at the time. With whatever room Steve-O had been living in for the, like, week and a half or two weeks, it was in filming other things in swamps. And so if you imagine, like, Steve-O's, you know, the way he was taking care of himself at that time was not as clean as he's living now. Um, so things were sure, like, sure. You know, there was alcohol and there was stuff that was kind of building up in that room, and there was fumes, and there were like unmade beds, and there was like weeks worth of socks that no one was doing laundry, and things that had been in swamps and then stayed on the floor and kind of like developed the stench for you know, it was a place that had like a built-in gross smell that had been festering for a while, well, and whatever room we were filming it, like a college um, dormitory. Yeah, and my memory is that, like, the windows didn't really open. Like, they were kind of, oh. you, you know, a lot of motels, like, to minimize people falling out of windows or jumping out of windows, seal them shut so you can't really open them wide enough to get fresh air or air at all. And there's a built-in air conditioning unit, but you have to turn that off when you're recording sound for a movie so you don't just hear the roar of a air conditioner over everyone's dialogue. So we needed lights at that time for that shoot as well because it was, like, in this, like, beat-up hotel room. So... We've got bright lights generating heat, no air circulating, all the guys that are in that bit are all crammed in the room. And, you know, even if you're not seeing them on camera, there's like people who've also been in swamps and vans all day long who are kind of like packed in behind the boom poles and the cameras. And we're trying to film that bit. And uh, there's all this 
the lights are so hot, they're making the rubbing alcohol evaporate into the air. So you're breathing oh. in rubbing alcohol. So there's that strong scent to begin with. But then it's affecting your system. Like it's getting into your blood and your lungs. Like you're breathing in essentially like, you know, evaporating alcohol for the course of all the time that we're trying to get this bit to work. And it just kind of gets more and more heightened and it's more and more ridiculous. And you're laughing among your friends and you're carrying like a large, heavy shoulder mounted camera that's starting to weigh down on you. And we'd already been filming a bunch that day and that week and we're pretty wiped out or fried or exhausted. And because I was shooting not only for the movie itself for like, you know, each bit, like, okay, now at this time we're set up to do this stunt. I was also rolling documentary wise, like pretty continuously all day long. So if we're like talking to cops in the morning to try and explain what we did the day before, and get out of that, like I'm filming the production person trying to talk their way out of things with the cops. And then I'm staying with that and not supposed to pull me aside to talk about like, okay, don't let the other guys know, but I'm gonna hide a punching boxing glove in the wall on the second floor. So be ready to figure out how to shoot that. I, I wanna make clear, Dmitry Eliaskovich is the DP of Jackass yeah. and Rick Kosick is the main camera operator. I'm just talking about like what I was shooting and sort of like, hey, buddy, here's the secret thing that we're going to film that makes sure there's a way to, you don't miss that when it happens and no one else knows what's going on besides Dimitri and Rick. And, you know. sure. um, so I'm kind of running all day long and not really taking breaks or whatever, not having time to get a meal or whatever. So I had somebody grab like a cheese pizza so I could eat, so like a personal pan pizza so I could try and eat something while continuing to shoot all day long. And it was this weird local uh, franchise that, did something that they considered Chicago style, which to them meant that they like hid food underneath the layer of cheese. Like they put pepperoni, which I, I stopped eating meat whenever that Smith's record came out in 1985. So I'd been a vegetarian for like, I don't know, 17 or 15 years at the point we we're filming this Jackass movie and uh, just bit into one handed while look, you know, filming with the other hand and ate like a slice or two of this like personal pizza that had an entire layer of pepperoni hidden below the cheese so that you couldn't see it or wouldn't know it was there. And someone had just, you know, screwed up and got the wrong order or whatever. So I'm trying not to stop working, but I'm starting to feel really gross and weird. And like, what is this like crunchy, you know, bad Florida strip mall fast food version of pepperoni for someone who hasn't eaten meat in like 15 years and just start to feel really gross and like realize like what it is and try and like spit it out. And we're trying to also film a bit. So guys are like, Oh, like what's going on? Like why is Lance? And like, Oh, I realized I just like ate this whole like slice or two of like pepperoni for the first time. And, and you know, whatever the quality of that meat is, it's like low end basic Florida strip mall processed nitrate full version of a dead pig. You know what I mean? Like just to me disgusting. So I'm trying to continue filming and I'm breathing all these fumes and it smells from the odors in the room and the heat and the lack of circulation and the air being full, basically like breathing in alcohol and just start to lose it. And so Knoxville notices that I'm like woozy or that the camera is slightly askew or shifting. And I'm also maybe standing on a bed so that I can be, I'm not super tall as a person. So I'm trying to be up high enough to look down and see the hands going into the tank and you know get the shot and not be blocked by everybody. And I just start like woozing side to side and then maybe eventually like vomit and pass out and collapse onto the ground with the shoulder mounted camera. Uh, so that's, that's probably that footage. If you can't make it through that bit, I think that's what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, for me really, it's just, uh, I've, I've, I've gotten paper cuts in the webbing of my hand. I, I, but it wasn't a paper cut. It was a, a metal um, uh, window like 
thing. I can't think of the word right now. Like from the screen of a window or? From... Uh, no, no. From, so, so uh, the, the, they, the, they, they cover like the, the latch or the bracket or the slider. Uh, it's the thing. It's the, the, sh uh, sh not shingles. Um, the cover, the window covers. The, oh my goodness. Hold on a second. I'm <laughs> losing my mind. Like the, the blinds? Yes. The blinds. Thank you. Okay. That is the word. They were metal blinds. Oh man. And I had my hand on the wall and it oh, no. flipped. It oh, no. flipped. I went straight through and yeah, when the webbing of my hand, metal, metal blinds. Oh man. So, so just paper cuts in general. Um, yeah, they just, that, that's the only, and, and of all, all three films, it's the only one that I've ever not been able to watch all the way through. Like I, I yeah. sat through it in the theater, um, yeah. but, but it's like my arm was buried into the, to my head was buried into the arm of my friend right next yeah. to me. Like, <laughs> yeah, um, Jeff Green, who directs the Jackass films, he's pretty good at making sure that in the overall flow and balance of the, the feature films, that there's things that are a challenge for the viewer to get through <laughs> and that that kind of helps the lighter moments and the sillier moments and the laughs to hit harder when you've just been through something that you were half covering your eyes or like grossed out or can't believe that you're watching. Yeah. Trying not to throw up. Yeah. Um, with that, I, I, I don't want to uh, pry too much, but uh, uh, are you, you are involved with Jackass 4? That's correct. Yeah. We, um, you know, the guys have been talking about it for a while and trying to figure out like, is it right to do one? Is it not right to do one? What's the combination of factors that would make it make sense to do one? how do we rise to the challenge in the bar that was set in the past and like make one that stands up with the rest of the work and all of the kind of good, healthy developments that would need to happen for a new movie to make sense and be great started to come together. And people who had learned from all the things they made over the years were happy to talk to each other again and see each other. And everyone was in a good place and we're helping some of the guys that had been kind of going through stuff to like get to a good place to all, able to team up and get the band back together and, and start shooting stuff again. And um, I'm very happy. I thought we were going to try and keep it secret the whole time. Like I was being low key about it. And then someone at Paramount put it out on their release schedule that it was going to come out in March of 2021. And then that got picked up by, you know, film culture and news reports and sort of the, it was hard to hide it. To hide it. Sure. It. It's and and uh, pushed the release date back to July of 2021 because of the, you know, the kind of shifting schedules of theatrical release and everything that's going on with our current pandemic. But I sure. uh, had started shooting some footage and I was thrilled and very happy and all the magical stuff that you hope would come together and circulate in the air and, and raise everyone's performances and the funny things that they say and the charisma and laughter and bravery and, and dumbness and all the factors that go into making good jackass footage, like we're all working and it was great to have everyone uh, all doing that. And so you talked to Rick Kostick in a previous episode, who's the main camera operator. Uh, you should try and get Dmitry Elyashkovich, the DP, to come on and talk at some point. I think he'd be oh, great. Excellent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Jeff Tremaine directing it and all the guys uh, rising to the occasion and being their, their great self. Of course. And, and I do have to say, uh, I, I do know that it was trying to be kept under wraps. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, Jason Acuna on the show yeah. Yeah. and, and I asked him about it and he goes, ah, you know, there's not, I, he's like, he's like, I wish there was, but there's not. Yeah. And yeah. the day I released the episode <laughs> is the day they announced Jackass 4. Yeah. Again, like, you know, I think also at the beginning of a project, like I'm personally not someone to tend to talk about things until they're done and ready to come out. Like I've made a lot of things that 
for whatever reasons, like it, the people involved just felt like, oh, it's not the right time to put this out quite yet, or let's hold off, or I changed my mind about whether this is the right thing to release right now. So there's like great things that I've been involved in or worked on or made that like will secretly, you know, sort of wait for the right timing to be announced or come out. And I'm not, I don't want to be the one that like tells everyone that we're making a Jackass movie too soon or before the timing. Cause you know, it's, it's something that like, if it starts leaking out of people know the ideas, it kind of undercuts the surprise or joy or moment in the theater of everyone like experiencing it together. Absolutely. And on another psychological level, if you start hearing about something now and just realistically with the conditions of the world and theatrical release dates for a giant studio like Paramount, like they have to kind of pick a weekend and stick to it. And once they announce it, that discourages other uh, releases from trying to come out that same weekend. Sure. So it's like they, you know, they probably chose March based on like, oh, that'll be after James Bond and before Avengers, you know, so that they could have their own weekend. Um, when that had this shift, it went to like sometime in July of, of 2021. But if people hear about this all now and are not people that totally follow culture and know all the reasons that things take a while to come out, it could feel to them, what? That, oh, man, I heard about that like two years ago. That like that must not have been good. They must have like just be dumping it out now. And it, like, that, you know, that's played out. That's something I heard about like two years ago. Sure. So I think it's better for most things strategically to stand around. Or, yeah, like let the audience know about it closer to the time and build up excitement and let them know and get the word out in the summer of 2021 and get everyone excited to go see it. And not have them be like, oh, man, man, I, I was living three apartments ago when I was first hearing about that. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, prime example, New Mutants. Yeah. I saw yeah. I saw a trailer for New Mutants three years ago in the okay. theaters. And it's still it's still not being released yet. And they've even had to move the release, the, the date pushed back more because of Corona. Oh, man. I don't uh, follow that culture so much. What is um, New Mutants? New Mutants is uh, it's a it's you could say it's a Marvel so it's Fox. Okay. Uh, it it basically it's a bunch of young mutants that uh, it's it if you look at the original trailer it seems like a very dark film and they do not really relate it or link it to X Men at all. But it's it's about from what I've the original trailer and it's been so long since I've really seen it. It's a bunch of kids that are mutants that are. Uh, uncontrolling of their powers and they're basically just putting in an asylum they're ba- they're putting okay. in a in a loony bin yeah uh, so and very, it's a, very zero for conduct derived i imagine probably probably yeah. it's uh but but also uh going back to the main point uh my friends basically were like oh we man lied and i said no 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 he probably <laughs> had an nda yeah like yeah, like for sure like, like, yeah. like for sure that's one thing you know having friends that work in hollywood uh, I know NDAs are a thing. I know that there are, are, you know, you can work on something and not be able to talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, but that's great. I'm definitely looking forward uh, to Jackass 4. Um, but with that, we will continue back uh, to the uh, to the to the fun part. Uh, well, all of it's fun for me. Uh, do you happen to have? Uh, do you remember the first movie to give you nightmares? Oh man, I've been. During this weird pandemic time, I've been, uh, I have like a production office, film studio place, and I'm working on some new news programming that's going on during the pandemic. So I'm like legally, you know, able to go work on this production stuff in this space. And I've been kind of like breaking down old boxes and and cleaning things up. 
And I found a bunch of uh, magazines and notebooks and stuff based on the time period that I was first uh, seeing culture and seeing scary movies and things that were out there in that world and finding things that I'd tracked down over the years, like movie posters or books or articles about some of these like early scary things. There was a very mediocre movie called Fade to Black that's about like a obsessive film fan who gets fixated on like Dracula and maybe the mummy or whatever, like horror characters and starts kind of dressing up like them and acting them out and committing some murders. So it's not a good movie. It's not worth watching, but the trailer for it, which I'm sure people could find on YouTube. When I saw that on TV as a little kid, like creeped me out and scared me. It's like a very effective, uh, maybe close up of this guy sitting in a movie theater with weird makeup, maybe kind of Dracula type inspired makeup on and the camera slowly pushing in on him. And there's a, ominous voiceover announcer talking about this creepy guy and he's holding like popcorn in a drink. And I think he like makes a startled motion and spills the popcorn and looks at the camera or something like that at the end of this 30 second creepy commercial. That was like one of the early scary things that like freaked me out or like got in my head as a kid. Um, there's a movie called Prophecy. It's like a Canadian, again, mediocre, not totally worth watching the full movie itself, but it had like a creepy poster image of like a weird fetal environmental monster mutated creature within like an egg type of a shape that you were seeing inside. Um, that poster, when I saw it in a newspaper ad or a movie poster at a theater as a kid, stuck with me and stayed in my mind. It was like, at the time that people were talking about like pollution and the ecology and like fish with three eyes and like mutations from acid rain, like this seemed like, oh, there's now there's gonna be monsters in the world from like mutations happening. Like I was worried about that as a little kid. Um, again, not a, a feature film that's worth like tracking down and watching, but the poster image is probably worth like pulling up and looking at online. Um, Friday the 13th part two, I saw like a magazine article, probably Fangoria that had like stills or images from Friday the 13th part two as a kid. And like that lingered in my mind and imagination of like the idea of like a malevolent force that was just coming to like hurt you or kill you. Um, those are some of the early scary ones. What about you? <laughs> Uh, for me, uh, it always goes back to Pet Cemetery too. Okay. Uh, it's I was the day before I started fifth grade, and it wasn't so much uh, the the it wasn't so much the film itself. It was the circumstances of which happened in my house afterwards. I was falling asleep, and uh, I had a bunk bed. My cat was on the top of the bunk bed, and he fell between the wall and the bed, and, oh, no. clawed, and his claws all the way down. Um, and it just I was like just falling asleep. Oh no! <laughs> That's like the the first real movie that I remember giving me nightmares. I can definitely say uh, is the '90s TV series of It. Uh, I okay. definitely I definitely caught bits of that that I yeah. shouldn't have seen. Uh, yeah. The scene with Eddie Spaghetti in the shower uh, okay. in the boys' room, and and Curry comes out and he, he glares the big teeth. Oh wow! Uh, so I mean, really. <laughs> My stuff, uh, when it comes down to it, you can watch it as an adult and not be scared. It, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It, it is completely cheesy, uh, and Pet Cemetery 2 is not a good film. Um, yeah. It's It's got a fun cast, but it's it's not it's not a good film. I enjoy it more than I enjoyed the Pet Cemetery remake, though. Okay. Uh, have you seen the uh, the new Pet Cemetery remake? I have not. Tell me about it. <laughs> you can skip it. Okay. If you've seen the original uh, from the 80s, uh, that's definitely, I, I feel, a better version. Uh, the new one, uh, they change it to Daughter Dies instead of The Son. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's not good. It's just not a good movie. 
I have uh, something your listeners might be able to like help track down or confirm, or maybe your diving into film culture can help kind of track it down or confirm. I have something that I probably misremembered and built up in my head that I've been searching for, for, you know, low key and since I was a little kid and was never able to find it. And then realized I might've like misread the title and might've finally figured out what it was. But in case any of these words like ring a bell with your listeners, or if you dive into horror movie background stuff and, and can figure it out, let me know. Um, there were drive-in movie theaters in a part of New Jersey that I was living in when I was like eight, nine, 10 years old. And from the back of a car uh, driving on some of these like, not freeways, but like, you know, four lane highway roads with like strip malls on either side of them. There would sometimes be like a clearing and like a, a drive-in movie theater where you would see R-rated exploitation and slasher era are, you know, garbage kind of movies projected at night if you're driving back from one event to another um, and see things that like definitely like kids should not be seeing out of the back of a passing car at a drive-in theater from like a public viewpoint. It was surprising that they were allowed to do that. And I guess they eventually closed down. So in my mind, there was like a trailer or TV commercial that was running in sort of like the Philadelphia market in 1980-81. And I thought that they talked about a bunch of different kinds of murders, like naming different ways that characters got killed in this movie. And I thought that the announcer and the text on screen mentioned something called scissor-side, like murdering someone with scissors. So I thought it was like, you know, uh, flamethrower side, hatchet side, you know, show someone else get killed, blah, blah, blah. scissor side, and then like, like some scissors snapping together. And that sound and visual in my mind of like scissors uh, being used and this idea of like murder by scissors, like really stuck with me and like gave me the kind of creepy feeling that you've mentioned from the paper cuts. Um, but I never found any mention or reference to like any horror movie called scissor side or any movies that had like scissors as a main um, murder weapon from the early 80s slasher film era, drive-in movie era kind of thing. So time passed and there was like one movie that was a Canadian horror movie called Curtains. And I think it's like set in a theater and there's like some interesting parts of that movie. There's like a ice skating murder that happens with like a killer that has like a scythe or a sickle that they skate up to someone and kill them with. And I thought maybe there was like, maybe like some kind of semi-scissor type cutting instrument murder in the movie Curtains and maybe that's what I'd seen because I drove past the drive-in and saw this like horrible, after seeing TV commercials for it, saw like a scissor murder happen in some like R-rated serial slasher movie kind of thing. But then like Curtains didn't really feel like the whole thing. And then I just recently found a movie called Schizoid, uh, S-C-H-I-Z-O-I-D, and I'm trying to figure out, did I just as like a seven or eight year old kid misread the word schizoid and think that it looked like scissor side because there are murders, like the main killer in this movie is using scissors to kill people. Um, and that, that is like the imagery in the poster. And it's very likely that this is the movie, uh, schizoid, S-C-H-I-Z-O-I-D, unless any of your listeners are horror movie buffs or know that era of like early 80s exploitation drive-in uh, grindhouse kind of movies and can tell me like, no, there is a Canadian movie called Scissor Side. So if anyone can help with that, uh, that would clarify whether it's schizoid, murders with scissors, or actual Scissor Side. Sure. Scissor Side's a great phrase or word. Like I, you know, someone should go make a horror movie with Scissor Side. 
I think I think schizoid might might be uh, the, the 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 real explanation of it. Uh, but it if any likely. but if any of the listeners know of scissor side, please yeah. please reach out. Um, that's a that it's, it's interesting uh, just the the way that images. Uh, and the way things, it, something like that can be like a game of telephone. Like you see yeah, it so sure. fast. Yeah. It just, it just, over time, it just becomes one thing in the mind. Uh, yeah. And how, how images just stay with people. It's, it's yeah. crazy. Uh, like, you know, in either way, I either saw this on like a flickering 13 inch cathode ray tube, black and white TV at a friend's house of like a over the air radial antenna broadcast signal in 1980 or through the back window of a moving vehicle at a off angle projection on a drive-in movie screen to reinforce it like neither of those are like totally firm nailed down things but they end up in your mind and in your brain and in your imagination absolutely that just images in general that's crazy um with that uh i'm not sure if i had sent you this question initially uh, it has recently been created uh but take it as you will what is a movie that you feel that you can watch once and you never have to watch it again? There's a movie called The Fog of War, uh, directed by Errol Morris. We talked about Errol Morris towards the beginning of the podcast when we were talking about Vernon, Florida, as a movie that I could watch over and over and over and just sort of have on in the background or just even the audio recording of this film itself, like playing in, in theaters when I was working as a projectionist. This movie he made in 2003 called The Fog of War is one that you probably would watch once and then never want to sit through again or watch again. Um, he's a master filmmaker. He's great at sort of doing these conversations with uh, subjects. And so he invented a format, uh, a thing called the Interotron, where it's a reflective mirror, almost like a teleprompter over the lens. And he can project an image onto it of himself, like his face. So when he sits someone down to be interviewed, they're looking at what looks like an image of, of Errol Morris's face. And by looking at that and being human and relating and having eye contact and talking towards that, they're actually speaking directly to the lens. So it creates like much more intimacy of expression and how things come across than the approaches of other people that shoot interviews. Um, this particular subject is a guy named Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations during Vietnam. He's a guy that was most likely like the main architect of like escalating and sending more American troops and not listening when they were realizing that people were dying way more than they should and killing more people than they should for, you know, purposes that were not worth it. And that they, he sort of was, you know, one of the main people that decided to kind of double down or keep going or like, maybe it'll turn around if we just add more people and kill more people and lose more, maybe we'll be able to like find something we can call like a endpoint or a victory. He was sort of the architect of that. So you go from watching this guy try and explain or rationalize or justify some pretty terrible decisions he made that cost human lives on on all different sides. Um, so it's not something you want to watch again, but it's definitely worth watching once and seeing like what is the mindset or persona of this like kind of mild mannered guy. Like he had been in corporate work before he, he did uh, the Secretary of Defense position and was like affected at you know whether it was like the automobile industry of like here's a rational way to set up a system and then once you do that system you can. Uh, make revisions and, and bring down the profit margin this much. It, sort of applying those things in that mathematic to like human investment in an in invasive war, uh, you just see like how his skill set went wrong and how someone starts making mistakes and then 
is scared to acknowledge them or, or pull out because it, then it looks like they are, quote, a loser. But then they end up like killing more and more humans that should not have been killed. So sure. worth watching once, but like not something you necessarily want to like sit through again or watch or spend more time with that same person. Absolutely. And that's that's a that's a good one. I I, I really enjoy uh, the answers that I get from this one because uh, you get a wide variety. You can get movies that, that are very serious like this one uh, or you get an answer like the animal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what great. The, what, what was the animal? Uh, the animal is Rob Schneider. Oh, um, right. Yes. Yeah. Where 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 he's he's you know like he's seriously injured and and parts of him are replaced with a, an animal, okay. different different animals. And at one point, like he walks around a goat and then smacks its ass. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, I haven't oh, seen that one. Uh, it's I'd say you, you don't even really need to watch it. It's <laughs> is it part of the is it part of the Sandlerverse or is it like a offshoot more Rob I, Schneider? I, I think it's just an offshoot Rob Schneider. Okay, yeah. It might be it might be a Happy Madison production though I I am not sure as far as I know I don't remember it really tying into anything like I don't think Sandler had an appearance in that one. Okay. Uh, but with that we do come to the final question of the show, uh, and with that it is a listener recommendation uh, of movie or, or you can name as many as you like but movies that you would like to recommend for the listeners to watch. Cool. So we've mentioned earlier in this conversation. Uh, the films of David Lynch, I would say Elephant Man, one of his early feature films after Eraserhead, is a masterful piece of work that I didn't realize it, but like they show it to kids. Like I, I saw it as a kid on cable TV, but I tried to figure out if it was like, I've got a daughter who's uh, 12 and was like curious about whether it was appropriate to show to her, whether she would connect with it or watch it. And I tried to kind of like screen it again myself to see, does this hold up? Would kids be overwhelmed? Is it too nightmarish or you know, what's, what's the deal. And then when I uh, talked to her about it, she had been shown it in like grade school, like a teacher just put it on and showed the movie Elephant Man as a way of talking to kids about bullying or uh, being afraid of something that's a little bit different and then therefore mistreating it. Um, sure, sure. It seems like a heavy film for a, a public grade school teacher to show to a bunch of like nine-year-olds. Like it seems like a wild choice, but I guess that, uh, that it can be done. Um, so the Elephant Man is definitely like one to kind of revisit if you've already seen it or to check out if you haven't as far as like an early interesting combination of great performances and writing and more of that kind of like dreamlike visual imagery that, that David Lynch was able to achieve in that film. There's a couple of things that came out of it that people might not know. There's like a song by R.E.M. called Carnival of Sorts that's taken from a scene where there's like a passing train that some of the carnival workers are, are looking at. Um, just like realizing that like the imagery that's in that kind of made its way out into the culture and it influenced like other writers and filmmakers and musicians and people and it popped up in, in multiple ways. David Bowie was like uh, fascinated by that character and did a stage performance of, of the same uh, play. It's just like an interesting work from that time period and it holds up now. Um, one of the favorite recent things I've seen, there's a documentary called Hale County This Morning, Comma, This Evening. So it's a weird title again, Hale County this morning, comma, this evening. Um, I'm on the committee for kind of voting for uh, documentaries for the Academy Awards and the Emmys. And of all the things that kind of got shipped out to look at or, or look at for qualifying in the recent years, this documentary by a filmmaker named uh, Ramel Ross, it's his first directorial project, I think. Um, 
it's like an avant-garde documentary that he made in Alabama in a county called Hale County, sort of filming the people that live there, the, it's almost like a tone poem of what it feels like and sounds like in this area of, of Alabama. Um, combination of like people you would think of as looking like kind of contemporary hip hop culture, people like with riding horses and access to taking care of farm animals and uh, how everyone interrelates and hangs out and, and gets along within this um, particular county in, in Alabama. There's regions of the South that are really fascinating that don't normally get portrayed or shown in films that get out to the wider culture in the United States. It's an area that's like underrepresented. I've always been excited to kind of go back and shoot footage in in the South and show what things are like for people and how the world works in places that are not just like uh, New York and LA. Sure. And I think that document is probably, you can probably find it online. Um, it didn't win best uh, documentary for either the Academy Awards or the Emmys, but it's the one that stood out to me the most in recent years and is uh, really lovely and, and innovative. And that director, uh, Ramil Ross, I imagine they're probably gonna continue to make great work. Well, that is excellent. Those are our two great films uh, that the uh, listeners should definitely check out. Uh, with that, we come to the end of the show. Uh, where can people find you online? What do you have coming up that you can possibly talk about? I've got a couple things. Uh, we're likely to resume production on the fourth track house movie whenever uh, conditions are safe for us to start shooting again. Um, that'll be out in theaters worldwide in July of 2021 is the current scheduled release date. Before then, I directed and executive produced a stand-up series that Will Smith hosted called This Joker, and I believe that's going to come out through Quibi. I'm not sure the release date on that, but that'll be coming up. And then I'm currently working on a streaming show uh, that we're trying to get out during this pandemic. Um, I've been filming people that I'm interested in over Zoom, along with a, a man named Chris Holmes, um, to put out a new show called Status Update. And we haven't figured out if we're going to do it over which streaming platform and which site to put it on. Um, but it's sort of a half-hour variety show where I talk to interesting people and record music performances and comedy bits and conversations and uh, just things that I'm interested in. So that's that's called Status Update. And maybe when this is podcast is up, we can put like a link to wherever that's going to end up. Yeah, perfect. Absolutely. Uh, and other than that, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm not super online, but I have a Twitter account, and it's just my name, Lance Bangs, and I have an Instagram account, which is also my name, Lance Bangs. But I don't know if I have a current website or other things like that. I tend to just kind of continue to make work and chip away at things and uh, don't have a strong online presence, I don't think. No, that's all right. It's, uh, I always like to get those uh, social medias for the Twitter and the Instagram out there. Uh, with that, uh, we do come to the end. The final question I will ask of you, uh, here at the last podcast you'd want, we try and keep a positive mental attitude, a PMA. Do you have any words of positivity or a personal mantra that you'd like to pass along to the listeners during these crazy times? Cheat death. Perfect. Lance, thank you so much for doing the show today. All right. Take care. And ladies and gentlemen, that has been another episode of The Last Podcast You'd Want. And until next week, tip the veal, try the staff. I'll see you then. Ever wonder how your buddy got those exclusive wrestling superstar action figures? Finn Balor or even that Ric Flair autograph 8x10 photo that you can't find in stores? Chances are they came from pro wrestling loot. 
Professional Wrestling's most unique and fan-friendly monthly subscription box. Pro Wrestling Loot customizes a 5-7 to seven item mystery box for wrestling fans that includes exclusive t-shirts, action figures, collectibles, trading cards, pins, autographs, and more that you can't find anywhere else. Today, for all of our last podcast you'd want listeners, we have a deal for you. Just head over to ProWrestlingLoot.com and enter the promo code LASTPODCAST to check out to save 20% off your first box with Pro Wrestling Loot. With over 20,000 followers online and presence at some of the biggest conventions in the United States, including WrestleCon and StarCast, Pro Wrestling Loot just isn't a business. With ties to indie, mainstream, lucha libre, American, and European pro wrestling, pro wrestling loot is always sending out the most unique items with you in mind over the last five years. Sign up today at prowrestlingloot.com for just $24.99 and start receiving your monthly pro wrestling loot box. Plus, for a limited time, enter code LASTPODCAST and receive 20% off your first box. Pro Wrestling Loot. For the fan in all of us. Thanks for coming to see our show. Sad to tell you we got to go. Grab your hat and head for the door. In case you didn't notice Mary anymore. If you like our show, tell everyone but. If you think it's great, keep your big mouth shut. It's over.